Welcome to Blue Collar Fitness. Your hosts are Connor Burton, trainer, competitive bodybuilder, and kinesiologist, Josh Sargent, strength coach, graduate researcher, and educator. Blue Collar's mission is to bring reputable information to the masses. There's so much misinformation in the fitness industry. We want to shake things up and help you navigate the information to add value to your health, career, family life, and fitness goals. We hope you enjoy today's show. All right. Welcome to Blue Collar Fitness, episode 43. We are here today with a man that probably doesn't need an introduction to most of you, but just in case, he is the co-founder of Renaissance Periodization. Dr. Mike Isertel holds a PhD in sports physiology from East Tennessee State University, formerly a professor of exercise and sports science in the School of Public Health at Temple University, Philadelphia. Mike has taught several courses, including nutrition for public health, advanced sports nutrition and exercise, and nutrition and behavior. Originally from Moscow, Russia, He has worked as a consultant on sports nutrition in the U.S. Olympic training site in Johnson City, Tennessee, and has been an an invited speaker at numerous scientific and performance health conferences worldwide, including nutritional seminars at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. Mike has coached numerous athletes and busy professionals in both diet and weight training and is himself a competitive bodybuilder and professional jiu-jitsu grappler. Welcome, Dr. Mike Rattel. Yeah, ooh, thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> Dr. Mike, it's been a while, man. Uh, the last we talked, you were you were just coming out with the scientific principles of hypertrophy training. And I'm proud to say both me and Josh read the book, freaking loved it. And then a lot has happened with you, man. Um, you did a bodybuilding show. You moved to the glorious streets of Detroit. <laughs> And uh, yeah, man, you've been really pushing out those, uh, those scientific training videos. Um, I kind of wanted to ask, like, I saw the last one. It was with the, uh, it's the, she was a Norwegian lifter. It was you and Jared Feather treating her. Oh yeah, her. Yes. Yes. Ash, Ashley was her name, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I guess really, uh, yeah, yeah. really crushed it. Those videos are freaking hilarious as well as your, all, all of your analogies too. I wanted to ask oh, you, like, thanks. What's been one of the most kind of funniest slash embarrassing moments for either you or the athlete during those videos? Because those videos are like, they're on one side, very motivating, but also like really funny. Mm. Embarrassing. I don't, I think I've lost my capacity to be embarrassed over the years. <laughs> I hardly remember what that feels like. Um, sure. It's, you know, we've had a few folks, um, I'll keep their names out, but they're very chatty on social media. You know, when you message them or they message you, they comment on things and you're like, wow, this person's really a talker. And then in, in real life and training, they, they barely, you get two words out of them. And, you know, I'm always trying to razz people. So I got to say something. I ask them a few questions and try to make some jokes. And sometimes that goes well. And sometimes they just give me really short answers and they just kind of, Maybe they're very nervous or something. Maybe the in-person thing is weird. Maybe I just have really shitty body odor and my breath smells. <laughs> but sometimes I'm like, hey, blah, blah, jokes, jokes, jokes. And they're like, uh, all right. I don't really 
you know, I just have one speed, but really, and then I just kind of <laughs> try to t- maybe uh, I, I go back to being a little more professional and trying to give more cues and then redo the jokes, literally the same jokes. I'm kidding. Uh, I try a few others and, you know, sometimes you really gel. Sometimes you don't gel so much. Um, you know, we've had a, at least once the, uh, the individual we were asking to do certain things didn't really seem to want to do those things. Uh, and there was some ego involved. And that was a little strange. But uh, otherwise, it's been pretty good. I think that's uh, just like being a personal trainer or a strength coach working with a new athlete. Sometimes it gels and sometimes there's crickets. And sometimes sure. you or the client will kind of kind of break wind. Like, oh, that's a cricket sound. <laughs> Actual crickets. All right, guys, put Somebody them back. get the exterminator oh, in here. <laughs> um, oh, that's really good. It was kind of funny. Last, last Monday, I was teaching this client how to do, I was actually having her do deadlifts. And as I was teaching the cues, I actually broke wind. I farted. And it was right as the weight was like hitting the ground. So I was like, oh, okay, no, press through. And like, I think she didn't hear it. But then she never re-signed. No, oh. I'm kidding. I'm jo- no, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> well, there's a lot of rules with farting. Like the one that smelt it, dealt it. The one that said the rhyme, did the crime. There's all kinds of it. I don't even know what in the end, all the rules contradict themselves. So I think you're fine. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so my, our, my first question for you today, I've, I've, I think we've consumed a lot of Dr. Mike content over the last few years while we're going through undergrad and stuff. Haven't we all too much, I'd say, <laughs> but I think one of the things that I personally haven't heard is what you did your, your PhD on and how that process was, um, maybe any advice you have for anyone going through that process or that, or that would want to do a graduate program in this field? Good question. So uh, just real quick, I actually had uh, maybe a week ago, a gentleman on YouTube, not on YouTube, um, on Instagram, accused me of plagiarizing my PhD. Whoa. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Not and, cool. uh not cool, bro. I mean, it's not cool to plagiarize your PhD or accuse people of it. Um, and, you know, I was kind of like, huh, that's interesting. Let's pull on this thread and see where it goes. And he was like, I was like, oh, where did you hear that I plagiarized my PhD? He's like, I think it was, I think Lane Norton said it on one of his podcasts. And I was like, oh, which one? And he's like, oh, I guess he must have deleted it. And I'm like, huh, all right. So, uh, you know. What episode was it? Is it episode 451 missing? And he sort of changed tunes. He's like, maybe it was Eric Helms. I was like, oh, okay. Also interesting. And then, and then he added, he was like, I, you know, a, a buddy of mine ran it through one of these, um, these website detectors of, you know, fraud or plagiarism. And I was like, oh, how did you get a copy of my PhD? He's like, it's online. I'm like, no, it's not. And he's like, oh, well, I guess the abstract is. I'm like, so I plagiarized my abstract? And at some point I realized he was what we call in the industry an involuntary celibate, a man that does not have willing sex with other people. So I was like, ah, I see. I was like, well, this is, did you have any fun? And he's like, well, yeah, you're a lot more fun than, than Lane Norton was. Cause I think Lane just blocked him out. Right. Um, I just thought the whole interaction was like really trippy because like initially it was, as a holder of a PhD being accused of, uh, plagiarizing a PhD is like a real serious thing. It was career destroying. Right. And like this guy just thought it was going to be a lot of fun. And like, I think he had like a fake 
he had a profile of zero posts and I, I guess i don't know if the picture was really him i suspect it wasn't i'm not sure um but that was you know that's my phd actually re recently came back to mind because of that whole interaction so you know whoever that person is i hope they fall ill and their whole family suffers immensely while they slowly die of painful <laughs> disease um so in any case um my PhD, I did in fitness characteristics of Division I athletes. So I had access to quite a large sample size of D1 athletes. It's usually um, very difficult to get to pull off. So I had 88 athletes from sports like baseball, soccer, volleyball, um, and a few others sprinkled in there. And more or less, what we were trying to do is... We were trying to see how various fitness characteristics related to one another and to see if some of them that we assume are very well related are not actually so related. And some of them that we maybe don't know are super related are. And all of this is to try to get a proxy without testing athletes extensively of like maybe just a few things we could test that would be so well correlated with other things that are important for sport that we just test a few things and they're good to go. So one example of some of the things we found is that vertical jump height predicts sprint performance very, very well, such that if you're looking at, you know, figuring out, hey, are my athletes getting faster? And you don't want to line up a ton of athletes with, you know, laser gates and all this other crap. You can just test the vertical jump and it really gives you an impression of what's going on. And if a resistance training program or a power program increases an athlete's vertical jump substantially, it is very likely to increase sprint speed as well. And that's kind of, you know, testing jumps is actually very easy. You get a vertex out, test the jumps, no problem. Can even be a part of training. And if you know that vertical jumping and sprinting are so well related, because they rely on the same basic fitness characteristics, the ability to produce vertical and horizontal forces, same muscles kind of do both. So it's all, it's all same, same. Um, then you can get a real good feel uh, for what's going on. And interestingly enough, one of the things that in sprinting predicts sprinting more than jumping is tendon elasticity. So you can bounce out of a lot of sprints, but you don't bounce out of a jump. It's straight counter movement jump. There's a mini bounce at the beginning, but not much. So if someone gets is a good sprinter already and they become a much better jumper, they're probably going to become a really much better sprinter because they probably have their mostly genetically based uh, bouncing his characteristics already and now they can just produce more raw vertical force which means geez you get their springy legs on the track they're going to do super well another thing that we found was that uh you know lean mass to height ratio predicts strength really really well and that's not really a surprise uh you know that's how much muscle you have, lean mass to height ratio, pretty close to estimate that. It's actually, if you think about mathematically, kind of an estimate of overall average cross-sectional muscle area, which of course is the main determinant of force production that correlates well with strength. It was kind of cool to know that like, well, look, like, you know, people say, hey, like I need my athletes to be stronger. And one thing we could say as strength and conditioning coaches is, hey, you know, what we found is that stronger athletes tend to be more muscular. And they go, okay. Okay, and there's also very good reason to believe that if you increase muscle mass, the athletes will get stronger. And they go, okay, so then what are you guys doing about your nutrition? What's your training plan look like to get the athletes more jacked? Because a lot of times, especially when I did my PhD, this is, I think, improving, albeit slowly. Did my PhD around uh, 2010 is when I started working on it. And there was a, 
a prevailing attitude among American sport coaches, especially that fitness characteristics like the ability to jump high, run fast, uh, be strong. They were cool and they were important, but sports skills were so, so, so much more important. And that maybe fitness characteristics is something, you know, the training beats you up when you do them and, and maybe you should train practice your sport more and maybe weight training is a little bit, uh, you know, too overdone and things like that. And another thing that is a bit of a misconception is uh, a lot of sport coaches want their athletes to have better fitness characteristics, but are maybe unwilling to do what it takes to build a baseline to have them. So, you know, one thing we found was that athletes who had a low body fat, uh, low body fat was one of the best predictors of sprint performance. What? Well, no shit. You know, carry around less fat, you run faster. Right. So, and, and one of the best correlates of vertical jump performance was actually, again, the lean body mass to height ratio and also various lower body strength indicators. So if you want athletes that are stronger, if you want athletes that are faster, then you probably also want athletes that are more jacked and less fat. Fat doesn't and fly. Then, say that again? Fat doesn't fly. Fat does not, right. And, you know, when it does, it makes all kinds of weird shapes and no doubt sounds and no one <laughs> wants to see it. Uh, but so basically... I know that a lot of this stuff sounds like, duh, but the reality of the coaching world and the strength and conditioning world and dealing with old, older school sport coaches is that they seem to look at strength and conditioning as this thing where it's okay, we take our athletes into the weight room two to four times a week. They do these movements or whatever, or the weights get lifted. They come out having this thing called strength and conditioning. They have acquired it. And then they, they go to play their sport and everything's great. And, you know, that does work to some extent, but if you really want the best athletes, you're going to want them to pay attention to their nutrition, to their body composition, to gaining long-term muscle mass that gains them long-term strength, to losing fat, to training for explosiveness in ways that don't so much look like the sport, for example, vertical force production. Like if you have an athlete that can deep squat 315 pounds and then on the way up, leave the ground with it, that's a dangerous, dangerous person because you put that person on a soccer field, they're going to hurt a whole lot of people on their way to kicking the ball through somebody's fucking skull. Right. And that'll be that. So the reality is that I suppose my PhD main thrust of it was to show or to, to learn and then show sport coaches like, hey, look, physical characteristics are real things in the world. We did a sub analysis that ended up not getting into my dissertation, but we did it anyway that um, this is actually very clever. I wanted this to be my dissertation, but for various reasons, it did not get included. We actually asked the each sport coach of each team, because we took in the entire team, all the healthy athletes were tested for each of like the four teams that we used. And uh, the coaches were asked to take their entire roster and rank all their athletes from best to, to worst, which is something that if you're a sport coach, you could do with your fucking eyes closed. It's the easiest thing in the world. They're like, oh, do you want me to do this right now? I was like, uh, you want to take some time? They're like, ah, nah, I don't need that. They just went, blah, 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 blah. it's easy, right? Because when you're a coach, another way to ask the question is who, somebody on your team has to get hurt. Who's it going to be? Aliens are going to come down. They're going to phaser gun somebody right in the knee. They're going to be out for three weeks. Who is it? They're like, oh yeah, it's Kelsey. <laughs> oh, fuck her. She's a waste of time. And the last person they want is their star player, right? So if, if you just do the reverse order, the same thing comes out. So 
basically the coaches ordered their athletes on best worst. And then we had already done um, the testing of physical characteristics, which were not released to the coach. They were not aware of what was going on. And we didn't have any uh, choice in who the best athletes were. Not that I even, I sort of, you know, sort of knew kind of, you can tell, but not really. I'm not a soccer coach. So then we uh, ran some uh, correlative measures to see how well the prediction thing is. And it turned out, I mean, it's really good on average with some exceptions the athletes that are more muscular, leaner, can jump higher and run faster, they're your best athletes. Now, that's a strange thing if you think technique is the only thing that matters in sport and weight training is a waste of time. And I know it sounds crazy, but there's tons of coaches out there that are like skeptical of weight training and skeptical of strength and conditioning. And this kind of study and series of studies that was kind of like, well, look, you know, the very athletes you say are the best, you might not see them as physical specimens but they're almost always at least above average in their strength, in their muscle size, in their leanness. So if you want a team to look more like them, to perform more like them, it may behoove you as a sport coach to try to get the athletes more muscular, a very serious attempt at increasing strength, increasing power, and of course, keeping body fat in check such that you essentially bias your entire team to be more good athlete-like you know, like if we were building the ultimate basketball player, we could take a look at LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan and say, what is it that they have in common? And if we could somehow bioengineer our athletes to be more like them, yeah, for sure they play better fucking basketball. It's obvious. But if, what the strength and conditioning room allows us to do, and, the, and of course, nutritional intervention is just by maybe even just a small margin, push all of our existing athletes to being more like our best athletes. That's what we try to do in technique training. Why wouldn't we try to do in strength and conditioning? And I'll just clear up some one last thing there. And I know to you guys, this probably sounds insane. And it's good that it sounds insane because that means the view is, is incrementally more dated. But there used to be, and it still is too much of a view in a lot of sport coaching, that athletes that are good, they just have it. I don't know what it is. It's just this one thing. It's something. The it factor. The it factor. And you know, they say, like Michael Jordan could jump so high and well, well, how do you think he did that? Did that with his body? Did that was unbelievable to produce, uh, ability to produce lower body rate of force development. That's how he jumped so high. Okay, there's their technique to fly through the air and still making shots. Yes, that's all technique. But if you want more basketball players to be able to jump as high or close to Michael Jordan, that's something that's not out of this world. And a, a lot of times there's too much mysticism about what makes a good athlete, a good athlete. If you sort of unweave the rainbow and break it down, there is something absolutely about how an athlete learns technique and expresses technique that is purely out, almost entirely outside the realm of trainability. Like some people just do have it. It's that, that, you know, how good are you at dancing? How good are you at flowing? How good are you at learning? Some people just have it, you know, like I'm Jewish. So I don't even understand what any of that means. I was born with negative athleticism. I actually take away other people's athleticism when I'm close to them. I'm not allowed to play sports or socialize with other children. My parents were always very clear about that. Just kidding. But uh, there is definitely that it factor, but there are other things that get attached to it in good athletes that are strength, power, size, speed, body fat, that you can change. And then maybe you won't have a, an entire team of studs, but you'll have a team of people that are like damn impressive compared to last year and the year before that. And at, at the tail end of my journey at East Tennessee, where I got my PhD, we applied all these things to the volleyball team with when my colleague, Ashley Cavanaugh and I worked very closely as sports scientists strength and conditioning coaches, and they won their first conference championship in a very long time. Uh, uh, and a lot of the people remarked like, damn, they hit the ball like guys. They're like, well, there's no such thing as like, 
the guy and girl is just a matter of in, in volleyball, like how hard can you hit the ball? And they were just hitting it hard because they were fucking strong. They spent a long time making them really strong and powerful. And it was, it was really neat to see. Fantastic. Awesome. I'm curious going back to comparing sprinting speed. Did you look at pull-ups at all? Was that, no. was that correlated? Gotcha. I, no. My strength conditioning coach in college made us do pull-ups. He's like, this is going to make you run faster. He's like all my athletes, they're the fastest runners to do the most pull-ups. And I'm assuming that just goes back to your fat-free mass versus lean muscle mass. Fat doesn't fly. That's what I, that's what in my head. I was like, what? Okay. The, the guy- to body weight ratio. Yes. Right. It's just a, a proxy for leanness and smallness and leaner and smaller people generally sprint faster than big fat people who also can't do pull-ups. It is funny though. So, so, so man, I, I don't want to talk smack. Can I talk a little bit of smack? Talk some Go smack. For it that thing you just said is a perfect, I thought that maybe for a while when I was ranting to you guys, you would have completely not been able to relate what I was saying about the fact that some practices in the coaching world are insanely outdated and not logical, but gee whiz, you just, you know, subdued that temptation because I mean, imagine thinking that the pull up has some causative effect on sprint speed what are you doing? Pulling your ass through the fucking air? Is there some magical, like, you know, shit you're pulling when you're, what is it? It's of, of course, it's the smaller, leaner people that do the most pull-ups. And, and also, you know, uh, another thing is just people who can do lots of pull-ups. They're not just small and lean, but they're also strong and jacked more so than average. Mm-hmm. And strong and jackedness is, means that or more and or just have better genetics you know um i remember the, the one thing that stood out to me can you guys still hear me yeah, yeah i can you, hear you you went a little bit uh optimus prime there for a second sweet the one thing that stood out to, can you hear me now yep i can hear you the, the one thing that stood out to me before i was um a sports scientist was i remember watching some sprinting like olympic world championship sprinting on tv and all the guys, bar none, in the 100-meter sprint were, like, out of their mind, jacked, biceps, delts, pecs. And I remember thinking, why are they so jacked in the upper body when, like, sprinting doesn't require you to have a strong upper body at all? As a matter of fact, if you have a smaller upper body, you'd be better at it. And then I realized, like, guys at the elite level of West African ancestry – black dudes are just fucking jacked. They're just jacked. And the same jackness that they have extends to the lower body as well as it glutes the size of your face. And then that's why they're fast. The shit down there, not the shit up here. It's just correlation in the upper body causation and lower. So when you saying like this guy made people do pull-ups because he thought it was the best correlate, it's like, Oh my God, like that's the kind of shit that I did my PhD to conclude very obvious things because what's obvious to many people is not obvious to all people. And some of those all people have coaching jobs and tell people to do completely insane shit. That doesn't make any sense. Unfortunately, it's almost what the old school coaches and the old school strength coaches who do those kind of practices. Like it's unfortunately who, you know, but it's becoming more like, that's why I appreciate you doing that with your PhD. It's uh, it's like shedding a light on, what works for athletes, how like these fitness characteristics actually make these athletes reverse catch, engineer. Yeah. Catch up to the genetically blessed athletes. Like, you know, Michael Jordan, we can really bridge that gap. So I really appreciate you doing that kind of research. 
Well, thank you so much. I thought it was uh, pretty cool. And also, you know, let's let's not put too fine a point on it, but taking the Michael Jordans and making them like super psycho robot Michael Jordans. Like, you know, I don't have some kind of like socialist agenda to equalize all athlete strengths. Like we train whoever shows up to the weight room and if the elite show up and oftentimes here's the funny thing. That's a lot of times how it happens is the people that have the best genetics also train the hardest because they give a shit and then they leave everybody behind. Um, I don't know. Have you guys seen the Michael Jordan documentary series uh, oh, that's yes. on Netflix? Fantastic. Uh, the Last Dance. My, so my wife and I are rewatching it now uh, for the third or fourth time, partly because we love the 90s kitsch, all the music and 80s, 90s <laughs> stuff, but also because like Michael Jordan, do you, uh, I, this is a long shot. Do you guys watch... Um, Dragon Ball Z. Do you know what it is? Yes, sir. Dude. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last interview we had, we we talked about well, the first question was like, "What's your favorite character?" You went on a you went off on a big thing about Vegeta. It was pretty cool. Of course. Michael Jordan is King Vegeta. He's old, or it's old man Vegeta. He doesn't give a fuck what it takes to win. He'll sacrifice everything, and he will yell at you, and he will get in your face, and even if you're on his team, he doesn't care because supremacy is all that counts. And, like, he goes on these speeches and cries about how, you know, like, remember he, like, teared up when they were, like, how hard did you push your guys? He was like, all right, let's take a break. Because he was, like, so passionate about winning at all costs. I mean, you got a guy with that mentality. I've trained quite a few really good athletes. A lot of them don't have that mentality. A lot of them coast on their genetics. Jordan had maybe the best genetics of all time and also the best mindset of all time. So, like, how do you stop a guy like that? So, yeah, fitness characteristics are great to bring up, to make you more elite, like if, even if you don't have the best genetics, but what about if the best genetics people use them funny enough? Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that part of the documentary, the Pistons beat the shit out of the bulls for the last time. They were like, fuck this. We got to get bigger and stronger. So they put, they literally all put on like 10 to 15 pounds of muscle and they just destroyed everyone. That was one of the best um, advocacies for strength and conditioning I've ever seen. It was just like, we just, you know, if that works for basketball, what do you think is going to be the case for football and soccer where like you can get away with basketball as soon as you touch someone you're fouled more or less relatively speaking you guys see in a soccer match the kind of shit they get to do to each other is insane and if the ref's not looking they could kill someone and be like oh sorry and then you know of course in american football hurting people is half the fucking sport so it's one of these things where what a, what a, a great uh you know what a great advertisement for weight training and what a great illustration of that winning genetic elite attitude when Jordan was like, hey, we're all going to get jacked. Let's get jacked. Now, I guarantee you half the guys on this team hated weight training. I've been around basketball players before. They generally just don't like it. They're built super awkwardly for it. They're not that strong. Most of their regular friends bench more than them because, you know, like, can you imagine Scottie Pippen's, like, range of motion on the bench? It had to be, like, five feet, something insane, right? He's not going to bench. He's going to bench, like, Jordan was benching, like, barely two plates for reps. It was like okay, really? You're one of the best athletes in the world? But, like, you know, his range of motion is kind of insane. Right. And, you know, he did what it took. He bumped up his own fitness characteristics. And then, then what? And then, so when the best guys and girls, when they train super hard and super right, then they become unstoppable. And that's really, I think, like, the pinnacle of sports science is to make everyone hyper elite, including the freaks. Speaking of reverse engineering athletes, have you heard of Ben Patrick, Athletic Truth Group, Knees over toes. Knees, Knees over toes guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That seems to be their whole thing is, all right, we're going to take these not only average 
you know, genetic athletes, but also their, their knees hurt, their back hurt, and then try to try to help all of the connective tissue, the joints rehab it, and then slowly build these people back up into an athletic state. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool, man. You know, one of the best things that came out of that whole knees over toes guys thing was, um, and you know, it's unfortunate that he has that name because the guy knows a lot more than just that to put your knees over your fine toes. Right, right. But um, I think the thing that I took away from that, and I was already familiar with this, but I'm glad it was became very popular, is the idea that if some range of motion feels weird and hurts, there are at least two possibilities that are going on. At least two, because there are many of them. One is that something is fundamentally wrong with entering that range of motion for a variety of reasons. It just don't do it. Like, you know, if you get hit by a car and then you're like, ow, someone could very rightly say, don't do that. Don't do that. You're like, oh, when I adapt to this, like maybe you could die. Um, But then the other reason, among many others, is maybe that shit hurts because you're soft as fuck and your connective tissues are soft, sometimes in the literal sense. And maybe if you took a graded, generous, marginal, easy, slow approach to introducing that range of motion more and more, and then once the range of motion was expanded, introducing concomitantly, and then on top of that, some loading, you could actually not hurt anymore at all. And you're totally good to go. And then you're now resilient and strong and you won't get hurt much anymore because the reason you were avoiding range of motion is because you had like, you know, not a super... Uh, adapted ability to go through there. So I was super glad that that whole conversation happened and I'm super thankful for him for bringing all that up. And he's a big, um, he expounds big on this idea too, that like, yeah, maybe you should avoid a certain range of motion, but maybe your avoidance of it is what made you super weak. And maybe you could get into those uncomfortable ranges. And at first it's going to be weird. I actually have a very similar experience with the hack squat. I used to never do hack squats because they hurt my knees And then I just like started doing them and found like a relatively comfy position and lowered the weight. And then over the weeks, my knees hurt less and less until they just don't hurt anymore. Hack squatting. They don't even feel bad. And I was like, God damn. And there's lots of people today using bands on hack squats, which, you know, have various merits and demerits. One of the reasons people say they do them is because it hurts their knees less. And I always think back to when my knees hurt from hack squatting and think, fucking God, I didn't have a band around because then I would have basically crutched myself with this band. What does the band do? It reduces forces at the bottom of the movement. Well, that's where your knees take most of the force. And instead of just reducing the force and actually makes the exercise very likely less hypertrophically stimulative because less stretch under load, um, instead of doing that, maybe you could slowly over time work to where your knees don't hurt. And then you have two benefits, jacked quads and really strong knees. And that that whole idea of, you know, getting in the weight room and becoming stronger for sport all around through really gnarly ranges of motion. That's a big deal. And actually, I don't know if you guys saw this. I had a discussion with Joel Seedman on the Mark Bell's podcast. I remember that. Where he, oh. it was where he described I had, his I was method. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, for, I'm not going to yeah. say anything publicly about that guy. <laughs> sure. So, and that was kind of like, you know, I asked a few questions and one of them was like, aren't we in the weight room to go through really gnarly ranges of motion, even at least those and potentially above and beyond those we get exposed to in training so that we're kind of like a little bit more injury proof. And um, 
loss of ability proof. Like if I'm, I do jujitsu, so, you know, here's your defense position for jujitsu for when you're trying to block for chokes and people on top of you. Now, if I do skull crushers from here to here to lock out and someone puts my forearm on my face, I, I have never been here in the weight room and I, first of all, could get hurt. And second of all, I'm just really weak. But right. if I practice super deep skull crushers, there's nowhere I can be put where I'm not at least able to exert some some force and do some good stuff. So you would think that's, I don't know. I was going to say you'd think that's obvious in sport training. I suppose I don't take anything for granted as obvious anymore. <laughs> so. I was going to say congrats on getting your uh, your brown belt. I don't know when that happened, but that's I don't want to. Thank come, you so much. I actually, I just told my coach, I said, look, I'm, purple's a fine color, but if I don't have a poop colored belt, I'm just going to quit. And he's like, fine, <laughs> take this belt. Going, going back to that concept, ETG calls it long range versus short range conditioning. So as you say, say we get into a spider curl, right? So we have extreme flexion of the shoulder. That's the short range. Versus the long range, say go way back here into extension. I have huge stretch and load on the bicep. So you're creating more micro trauma in the muscle here. So sure, you're getting all that long range conditioning, which is great for hypertrophy, but you overload the athlete with, if you did all long range stuff, you would, you would just overtrain all the time. But if you get more into the short range, you can do that high. This, this is the way ETG explains it, at least. You can do that high volume. What's ETG? Athletic Truth Group. So that's that's the knees over toes, guys. Uh, oh, I see. Yep. So that's why he's what he's talking about with the all the sled work, right? If you're reverse sledding, that's short range over and over and over with no no eccentric. So the eccentric is where that muscle damage happens. So it's just concentric, 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 pushing blood and nutrients into the joint. And then he gets people doing the more long range stuff, like the, the big deep split squats and getting into those long range movements after they've already built some, some strength in those weak knees. Interesting. I, I don't know about the short range stuff. I don't know how I feel about that. I have a few questions potentially as to how that works. But I will say that the eccentric stuff and the ability to control an eccentric into very deep ranges has a direct ability to reduce injury risk because many injuries happen during the eccentric phase, your inability to control the eccentric phase. Concentric injuries are quite rare. Uh, you know, it's successfully pushing something away and you're like, ow. It's usually like it falls into you and you're like, ow. So right. if you're able to control and, you know, Injuries are much more common at the extreme range of motion if you're put into it than at a, a decent range of motion. Like if you see someone squat a squat to 75% standing and they're almost going to squat and they're like, oh, my quad. You'd be like, what the, why the fuck did that happen? That's weird. Why does that happen? It's at the right? bottom. Like, at the bottom. That would be strange. But at the bottom in a deep stretch or at the production of forces, the highest to sort of the mid range, that's when you see a lot. So I think building resilience to a full range of motion is ultimately the best answer. But if I had to bias it one way or another, super deep, super stretch positions, that's where I would want to be strong in, in many different sports. Would you recommend for clients with any kind of knee pain to do sled work? If they're, if that's like mostly concentric, it's mostly traction, not compression with additional split squat uh, iso holds. No. So for a couple reasons, one, I don't ever recommend anything unless I have a diagnosis because I have no idea what I'm dealing with. 
It's like if you have like bone on bone, no more cartilage, it it doesn't matter what you do. You're fucked. And I could be like, don't worry. We're just going to masculinize your knees for you. Should take another few weeks. And then it turns out you can never walk again or something. So I think it's, it's per, per the situation is the best answer. Secondly, I don't under, I don't know what the big deal is with sled work. Anyone who has per proposition that sled work is a great idea. I have a few questions for them that may be slightly inconvenient. Like why is the sled the best way to do this? Um, I know that some athletes have sports in which the sled is a decent training tool, but I think a lot of people overuse the shit out of the sled where they could be better off lifting weights. Um, so I actually, I've never prescribed sled work in my entire life. Uh, when I was a strength and conditioning coach, we didn't have athletes that laterally pushed people around, um, mostly trained volleyball players and vertical forces are everything for them and super strong upper bodies. So they just did a lots and lots of squatting, jump squatting, second pull derivatives, like, uh, mid thigh pulls, hang cleans, shit like that to get really, really explosive in the lower body. And the, the sled had really nothing to do with that. Um, my, my friend and colleague, Dr. James Hoffman, he trained, he was a rugby player himself and he trained rugby players. And there the sled has a bit um, significantly more utility because in like a variety of like ruck and scrum rugby positions, you actually are actually fucking pulling and pushing against people. So right. um, I, I don't know what, you know, and maybe I'm wrong. There's a fine chance of that. Maybe the sled confers some really huge advantages, but to me, the sled seemed like um, uh, a solution looking for a problem in many cases. I, I, I know that like, so there's a big history with the sled being used by like West side people, like they like sled drags and I've seen them do it. And there's, it was just a giant fucking waste of time when they did it. I remember people doing the sled for cardio. They would put like 400 pounds on it and just like slowly walk the sled back. And I'm like, what is that for? And they're like GPP. I'm like, Yes, yes. Is that a string of three letters that you find fun to say? Or do you know what it means? They're like, well, yeah, general physical right. preparedness. I'm like, uh-huh. And, and the sled is how you're going to go about doing this? Uh, also, what is the point of generally preparing for the sport of powerlifting, which is so specific, you can skip that phase altogether. The whole thing, there's lots more to say. That's, that's to just like in, your, in your, uh, your book, Dr. Mike. The scientific principles of hypertrophy. I remember uh, chapter chapter one. I mean, going back to what James Hoffman, um, what you mentioned about him with his rugby players, he was specific with. You mentioned the, the sled there. It was more specific. So, I loved what you said in the book about specificity. Um, <laughs> there was an analogy I loved about the uh, if you learn if you have three hours per day, and you're trying to learn a language, and you split it up into like 1.5 of Cantonese, 1.5 hours of Italian and it's like, you know, you have to really put your focus on what your sport requires. Yeah. You may learn like uh, two languages very shittily. Uh, right. Exactly. Spend more time learning one language. Um, a lot of times. I, I, so there's a term I think we introduce in that chapter called a, called a needs analysis. Sure. Anytime you build a plan for an athlete, you build a plan to their needs and you find, first of all, you list out all their needs. Then you usually rank them in priority order. Then you see if any of those needs can be attended to in a sequential phasic structure. So you kind of know what to train first or what to train last. Like if they need power and size and strength, you're probably not going to make them that powerful and then train them for size to reduce all the power characteristics. Because now they're used to doing sets of 10 and then make them strong after, but they don't, they're supposed to express the power on the field of play, but you did power first. So there's a phasic structure to something. So basically you get a needs analysis. 
you rank order the, the priorities as, as much as you can, and then you land them, line them in the best phasic structure, and then you train them. And a lot of things, uh, well, sorry, before training them, you, you, you get a candidacy list of the top modalities that you think are the best ways to train them. And modalities include exercises and includes ways of using exercises. So like, you know, if you need bigger pecs, that's going to fall out in the needs analysis, and maybe it's your rank one priority. And then you have a bunch of tools at your disposal with which to build bigger packs, like sets of five to 10 in the bench or sets of 10 to 20 in the incline press, blah, 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 blah. But a lot of people don't do that. And for a variety of uh, sports that they practice or even for bodybuilding, they'll just like do stuff. And if you ask them, hey, why are you doing that? You realize pretty quickly they never did a needs analysis and they never looked at costs and benefits of things. So like, you know, a lot of bodybuilders do rack deadlifts, right? Like partial deadlifts from the pins and you can, yeah, you can, everyone can lift 800 pounds or something like that. And you ask like, Hey, like, is your, are, are your spinal erectors a limiting factor? And they're like, no, I think I need bigger lats. And I'm like, uh, and how much does a rack deadlift train your lats? And I'm like, well, you know, like some, I'm like, okay. So you haven't thought this through at all. Got it. That there are 10 trillion different lat exercises better for the lats and much better for systemic fatigue than the rack deadlift. But a lot of what happens in sport training and bodybuilding is certainly included. Is people train by kind of like a tradition almost. Like it's just what all the other big guys are doing. And also they train for stuff that's fun. It's kind of cool to put eight plates on the deadlift bar and get after it. And it's kind of sweet. It makes you feel nice. Nobody wants to do lap prayers with 120 pounds on a cable. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Right. Like as women using more than that right here next to me, I don't, I don't know if I come out in public anymore. But if you want the best possible results, you know, it's a probably good idea to do a systemic analysis of everything you're doing. So then, you know, when you take second place at the Olympia, you can say, I, you know what, I'm proud of my second place. I did everything I possibly could versus being like, man, I could have got first if I did a real good job. So uh, that's, that's kind of why I'm a, a real big fan of taking things seriously. And really like the core reason why we wrote the book is because I really give a shit about trying to get jacked. Yes. If you really give a shit about something, you, you got to really think about it because if you just do thoughtless shit, how does that give you an advantage over other people that are, you know, I don't have such great genetics. They're fine, but I want to be more jacked than my genetics alone will take me. And everyone else is not everyone else. A lot of people just go on this hard work and genetics without much thought. I, you know, I'd like to get as jacked as possible. I'd like to put as much thought as, as required. Yeah. It's like the rocket analogy you mentioned in the book. It's if the rocket doesn't have the coordinates, where the hell is it going to go? I mean, you got to have a plan. And I, I really love the, uh, the stimulus, was it SFR scoring system? Stimulus. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That was awesome. Well, oh, thank you so much. Yeah. We basically like had to invent that um, because it became apparent to us that stimulus and fatigue were the two things that one of which you wanted, which is muscle growth stimulus from training and fatigue was going to come along for the ride in some capacity. We noticed that there were at least some clear examples where the stimulus and fatigue uh, could be um, uncoupled. And sometimes you think, okay, like what grows squat? Like what grows your quads the most? Squats, duh. Okay, fine. Let's say that's true. What gives you the most fatigue in the gym? Squats. Okay, fine. So it seems like, you know, people where all these memes come from, like, God, do the hard stuff, brother, like compound heavy basics, which is, is worthwhile. But that is where stimulus, as it goes up, fatigue also goes up concomitantly. But there are some exercises or some variations in which you can get the stimulus up a little higher than maybe normal. 
but you can cap the fatigue a little lower. And that's such a big deal because you could get more jacked doing that. Because if you, you know, the ultimate reason why we don't do another set in the gym or add another session or grow a bit more muscle is because we're unwilling to pay the fatigue cost, which is a good idea because too much fatigue will fuck up everything about your training program. So you say, okay, I would do another set of bicep curls, but honestly, my elbows are going to fall off my body at this point. So I'm done. What if you found a way of bicep curling, a machine or repetition range or a cadence that got you the same burn, same pump, same everything, same stimulus, maybe even better, but didn't hurt your elbows as much. And I'm not even saying not at all. Like yeah, people are always looking for magical solutions. Like I need the ultimate exercise. Like that, that doesn't exist, but we can get you an exercise or your technique on an exercise. If you think about the stimulus to fatigue ratio, you sort of embed it into your soul as I'm going to try to get the best SFR as possible in every single scenario. When you can look for the proxy, like, is this exercise giving me a pump? Is it giving me a burn? Is it giving me tension through the muscle? Is it getting me sore? And also how is it systemic fatigue wise? Like after you do a set of 10 in the deadlift, Someone's like, we think leg press. You're like, I'm still vomiting blood. Thank you. Uh, give me five hours or 10 days and then I'll go leg press, right? Find me a five gallon bucket, please. <laughs> Seriously. And then just put it on the leg press so I can throw up every time the rep comes down. So, you know, uh, uh, there's different fatigue costs to things. And if you find exercises that give you a really good stimulus without a ton of fatigue, then they really could be great and you could use. And these the exercises change and they're different based on individuals and their anthropometry which is why the SFR is kind of like a, a little cheat sheet for bodybuilding or that the concept is a cheat concept because it doesn't say, hey, you know, bent roads are better than cable rows. It says, hey, you lifter, try both. Whichever one seems to give you more of a stimulus and less fatigue is probably the better exercise at that time. And what almost always happens is you'll have like three to 10 exercises that are really high stimulus to fatigue ratio exercise. And as you use two or three of them in any one training block, their ability to stimulate you falls because we adapt to everything, right? Like the first time you did leg press, you did one set, your quads flew off your body and you didn't feel your knees at all because it was just a, a couple hundred pounds. The 80th time you do leg presses or the eighth time you do them, like your knees are starting to feel it a little bit. And you know, it takes four or five sets for your quads to really get a big pump and get sore. So the stimulus generally declines over time and the fatigue rises. We just term that staleness, a training staleness. And then so you have a candidacy list of, you know, three to 10 exercises that are great for the quads. Uh, Some of them are on average better than others, but they're all really good. And then once a few of them get stale that you've been using, they basically fall in their SFR rankings and other exercises supersede them. So all you need to do as a bodybuilder is within the context of what your priorities are, take a look at your list of good exercises, pick the ones you think are going to have the best SFRs in this coming mesocycle, use them until they don't have great SFRs. And people say, well, how bad can a common question we get is how bad can an SFR get to where we like can abandon it? And there's only really one answer is, is there another exercise that has an SFR higher than that, that you could be replacing and using instead? The answer is yes. Maybe it's time to replace. If the answer is like, nah, leg presses are still better than the next best thing I have access to. Then you leg press away until they're worse. So that's how you use that system. And I, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's some shit people do do intuitively anyway, if they're pretty smart. Uh, we just like named it. I'm like, the, my legacy in, in sports science and hypertrophy will be naming obvious shit 
that no one else just bothered to name before. I don't know if I discovered anything. It was just kind of like, you know, like we already know these things are real. Why don't we give them a name? Because once you give them a name, you could talk about them, you can reference them, and you can tell people, hey, you know, uh, you should try to get a better SFR with this exercise, and here are some tips how. And they're like, what's SFR? You describe it. They're like, oh, because it's stuff you can feel yourself while you're doing it. It's the ultimate cheat sheet because it's like your own body. It's like taking an anatomy test, uh, but you have your own body to look at. You're like, oh, bicep, what's the function of bicep? Oh, flexion, or write that in. You get it wrong anyway. You're an <laughs> idiot, have dyslexia or some shit like me. But in any case, I think I think that's. Um, I'm really happy you brought up the SFR because I like to pat my. If I could touch my own back, I, my arms are too big, can't do it anymore. Um, I would pat myself on the back for that. Jack, it's isn't it a, a crazy problem? Did you name reps in reserve? Or did, you, did you classify that? No. No, I did not. I feel like you, you definitely revolutionized it. You know, Arnold, like, uh, I think it's like the, the, the uh, Arnold Press. I think somebody uh-huh. may have done it before him. So uh-huh. you're the Arnold of the RIR. You talked. Oh, geez. You can't it against uh, going to failure all the time, you know. Yeah. So I think of somebody who had taken up that fight maybe at the same time, maybe a little earlier than me, was Eric Helms. And right. I, I believe he actually did a large body of his, maybe even his dissertation on RIR. I just I referenced his RIR. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Capstone. So he's taken a much more academic approach. But what, uh, so I arrived at the idea of RIR before I ever read it. I independently arrived at it because I had taken the mantra of training every set to failure for years. And then when I tried not doing that, my cumulative fatigue went up by half as fast and my results were just great. My progression was great. And I was like, damn it, how much time did I spend training all the way to failure? And I thought if I, t- if I quit the average set about two reps before I was done, done, then I actually just get the better stimulus or just slightly worse stimulus per set, but like half the fatigue. So if I did two sets, it was already the SFR was way better. So, and the, actually the absolute, the raw stimulus was better as well. Cause two sets later, you know, you can't do anything, but you could do a third set if, if you had that little fatigue with the partial. Talking about the RSM. So, so no, just, just for RIR. Yeah. Uh, and it, so the, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, actually, absolutely. So the raw stimulus magnitude of failure training is the highest it can be. But unfortunately, that does not uh, integrate fatigue. So the SFR of training to failure, not that good. But a lot of people don't even think about fatigue. So again, man, when I train to failure, it really like gets me the biggest pump and burn. Like, no shit. And it always will. The question is, you know, how much is it going to benefit? A, a quick analogy is kind of like... Um, uh, this is a bit of a bougie analogy, but fuck it, nonetheless. So like if you fly business class international versus first class, like business class from regular business gets you layback seats, excellent service, great food, uh, and super entertainment center and all that bullshit. And your own little cot to sleep in, you know, 180 degree seats. That's like, I don't know, like like three to $5,000. All right. But if you go first class, that's like 10 to 15,000. You get a slightly bigger bed, actual silverware that's like made by some designer up guy i got upgraded class uh to first class once and i was like they're like he in the menu it's like who made the silverware i'm like give us a flying (laughs) fuck now luckily i didn't pay for that shit but it's like okay how much more do you get flying first than business international it's like this much Mm. is it worth double or triple the price fucking crazy same idea as like flying uh domestic business class in the united states a full make, let's say a flight is an hour and a half. A regular ticket, 200 bucks. 
business class ticket, 600 bucks. What do you get? Like you get a bigger seat that reclines more. You're in there for an hour and a fucking half. Can't you just sit in a normal seat? It's three times the price. Why would you do it? There's a similar effect going on with training to failure. Yes. Yes. Training to failure gives you more hypertrophy per set. But like for the cost, the price of fatigue, oh my God, it's not even close. Most of the time it's, it's a done deal. Uh, reps in reserve training, one, two, three reps in reserve is almost always better than training to failure. Thank you so much for that because um, Josh and I have really included that in our programs as a, as a safe measure to really encourage people who are following the program to stay safe, but also get the biggest bang for the buck as far as getting heart pressure, gaining muscle, getting jacked, jacked and tan. And the whole nine. So I really appreciate it. Clients see yeah, there's nothing more important than getting jacked in town. They right? really like the RIR and like the first session, they, it makes sense. They're like, oh man, okay. Wow. You like, guys must be good coaches. A lot of people are like, what? Educators. <laughs> they're like, wow, RIR makes sense. I'm like, yeah, if we can stay between, you know, zero and five RIR, we're going to make a lot of gains. If Great. it's less than that, uh, or it's more than that, you're not going to make a lot of gains. And we're just going to linearly move up from five RR to three to two to one. And then we'll deload. Yeah. There's some, yes. I was going to say, there's a, there's a big opportunity cost, but uh, go ahead, Dr. Mike. No, 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 please, please. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking about what happened today. That kind of um, caught my eye was the death of Cedric McMillan. Have you heard of him? Yes. And it's, it's really unfortunate. I, I want to ask you, you just did a show recently. Um, was it last year? Uh, technically, but it was in December, so it feels that was a few months ago. <laughs> right. Last year means it seems like 50 miles away, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what could professional bodybuilder, because I want to go down that route myself, so I, it's kind of a personal question, and I know you're doing shows, so what could professional bodybuilders do better to, to, to get better safely with their training as far as fatigue management, but also stay safe uh, when it comes to super supplements? Like, what do, what do you think they're doing right? And what do you think they're doing wrong? That's kind of a long-winded question. Well, that's okay. Yeah. So with training, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. As you get enormous, you want to be able to maximize your SFR and not have to use a gazillion pounds of weight to get hypertrophy. So if your technique is optimized and your SFR is really good, you don't have to beat the shit out of your joints with like 100,000 pounds and then you just last longer. Um so that's the, the training one's pretty easy. And also, of course, fatigue management, deloading when necessary. But most bodybuilders are pretty good at that, especially auto-regulation. They, you know, if they feel terrible, they'll take a few extra days off, which a lot of times drops a lot of fatigue. So there's only so much you can grind your nose into until you actually start getting weaker in the gym. Nobody really ever really likes to do that. So they usually back away. And bodybuilders are decent at doing that. Technique, not decent at all, not even in a million years. There's some people coming up in the industry that are really, really good. Um, I actually think um, Matt Jansen has had a, a very profound effect on a number of bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. Like you, you take a look at Nick Walker's videos before he worked with Matt Jansen and then after he worked with Matt Jansen. I mean, he used to like incline press 500 pounds incline press on the Smith machine, like a one quarter movement for sets of eight. I can't imagine how your elbows would feel after that. And then Matt Jansen had him working with like 120 pound dumbbells after that. And it was like, oh, Nick Walker's just getting a lot bigger <laughs> because it turns out full range of motion and control and intent and all that stuff really does work wonders. And, you know, I don't believe Nick Walker has had an injury ever since he started working with Matt Jansen, which makes a lot of sense. How the hell do you get hurt if you're strong enough to lift 500 pounds for reps? But if you only ever use 120, 130, 140, it's really tough to get hurt. And that's really kind of the big key in bodybuilding is 
a lot of guys, when they get big and strong for the first time, uh, and Connor, you're going to probably experience this yourself uh, in, in uh, next years and months and stuff, when you get nonsense strong, well, and it's fun to lean into that at first. You're like, did I just squat 585 for three? I'm going to squat it for 10. I want to squat 700 pounds for whatever. But then as you mature in the sport, you realize zero judges on the bodybuilding stage give a flying fuck for how strong you are. I mean, it's not that they don't give a shit. It's that they also don't know and don't care, right? So all that matters is how big your muscles are. You start to think, okay, last time I, I went for this huge PR, I pulled my quad a little bit. It wasn't a career-ending injury, but it took me out of the gym for two weeks for training quads. And can I honestly say I got really sore and really pumped from that workout? No, my knees hurt and I had a cool Instagram video, but that's kind of all that happened. They say, fuck, man, maybe there's a better way for me training. You start doing a little bit more pre-exhaust, more full range of motion, more control, more um, control on the eccentric and stuff like that. And all of a sudden you don't have to squat 700 pounds to get huge legs. You might only have to squat four or 500 for reps in the right context. And you have as big as legs as you're capable of getting. So that's on the training side, I think a really huge revelation. And thank God, slowly but surely, bodybuilders are coming around to that because especially we have like Mr. Olympia right now is Big Rami. And you guys ever seen him train? He doesn't do a lot of ego nonsense. It's mostly pretty decent range of motion. Lots of free weights in a controlled manner. Lots of machines. Like there's a video of him doing upright rows with like a preloaded barbell and it was like 90 pounds. And like, well, come on. If Big Rami needs 90 pound upright rows to get shoulders like that, you motherfucker, 15 year old sure as hell don't need 100, <laughs> right? So, and all the other bodybuilders are watching that. Uh, and people copy the top guy, the co top few guys. Um, one of the guy who trains pretty well is like uh, Hunter Labreda. He seems to have his training down to a lot of control, a lot of meticulousness, good exercise selection, good range of motion. A lot of Nick Walker, a lot of the guys now, and Hadi Chupan actually trains really well anyways. A lot of the guys from the Middle East, they're like too hardcore to do cloud shit like partials. They just don't do that stuff. They just make fun of you in the gym so much. You'll just leave and you'll never come back. And a lot of them, they're in the same gyms as Olympic weightlifters and stuff. And if people see you partial squatting, they're just like make fun of you until you stop. But so in any case, that's, that's all happening. I hope it happens faster. I hope it happens more. But like the whole clown show of like, the guys will be like, I touched the 180s today. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Touched? Like you touched your hand to the 180s and felt the temperature of the dumbbell? Like, I handled them. You're like, okay, you did this like spazoid seizure shit with them on an incline bench. I saw that stupid as fuck. I would say do as little of that as possible and do as much like all due respect for his work ethic, his intelligence and his accent branch Warren is the fucking man. I look up to him like crazy, but like, I wouldn't look up to him for training intensity. Fuck. Yeah. Technique. God, no, you just do the opposite of everything he does. You'll be really well off. So that's for training stuff and how to stay safe. On the pharmacology side, there's a couple things to say. Uh, there have been some high-profile deaths of bodybuilders of late. Uh, it's not clear to me, though it may very well be, a statistical abnormality. Okay, I'll, I'll say it. The men of African descent in their 40s that weigh well over 300 pounds are statistically risky category anyway. Like if Cedric McMillan did not lift weights and was just a fat 300 and some pounds and was a black dude in his 40s, would you be so surprised if he met an untimely death? It's super fucking tragic, of course. But like thinking of it that way, you're like, huh, okay. When big people just don't live as long as other folks, it's a lot of it's the food that ends up, you know, burying most of us. So there's that to be said. So a lot of people will say, oh, these, these recent you know, deaths is a problem. Deaths are always a problem and they're always fucked up. It's not clear to me that 
I think just with the internet, it's very easy to keep up with that sort of thing. Um, so, so there's that. I'm not sure if there's like an epidemic of this shit. I wouldn't surprise me if there was, because lots of guys are using super high doses. And that's the second thing is compound use and dosages all come down to a personal trade-off, but a lot of it's knowledge-based. For example, it's been shown over and over again in very, very good research that anti-estrogens are some of the least healthy things you can take. There are guys, and, and so, because sometimes guys will take stuff like um, DECA, okay? DECA is a fine steroid. It builds plenty of muscle, but it converts a, a lot of it converts to estrogen, and guys don't like that because it makes them look soft, even though estrogen is pretty high, uh, anabolic. They don't like that look, so they take anti-estrogens with DECA to mitigate the anti-estrogen or to mitigate the estrogenic effect. The thing is, if you just take something like Primo, Primobolin, you don't get much of the estrogen, but you don't have to take an anti-estrogen. So the anti-estrogens themselves are super, super unhealthy. And if you just never take them or take them super rarely, you're really, really well off. So a lot of it comes down to compound use. Guys just take the shit the old school guys used to take. They're not willing to accept the newer, what uh, Joe Jeffrey and Roderick Chavez and a, a few other folks, John Jewett is a good exponent of this called like the safer use model. Like, yeah. let's take a look at all the drugs and how they work. And take a look at all the risk profiles and just use the drugs that are the least risky just as a matter of principle. And that is probably a good idea. Now, is there a trade-off for effect? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Like in high enough doses, Primo still does not require you to use anti-estrogen, but a high enough dose Primo is like how big Rami is made. You know, like the, the rumors from Oxygen Gym and in the Middle East is like two grams of Primo a week. Like that's a good start. I mean, that's a shitload of gear. You will get fucking enormous off of that uh, is it more expensive yes but how much does it you know what's cheaper deca plus an anti-estrogen or primo oh my god deca plus an anti-estrogen for sure cheaper but like the real cost is like your chronic inflammatory cardiovascular effects that you do not want to promise they will fucking bury you so a lot of it's shit like that secondarily it's understanding dosages and understanding what is required to grow muscle, where else you could make up for it, and uh, the trade-offs involved. So if you pay okay attention to your nutrition, and you do some cardio but not a ton, and your training isn't super intelligent, you can get fucking enormous just by blasting gobs of gear. Totally. You may be able to get equally as big on considerably less gear if you pair the gear correctly. Uh, if you use multiple different vectors, so for example, some guys will use a little bit of growth hormone, no insulin, and just fuck loads of test. Fine. That's not very good for your health. If you use more growth hormone, some more insulin or some insulin to pair with growth, you can get away with using half the gear and get the same amount of size with half the damage to your health. So there's shit like that that plays a big role. And if you're training smart and very hard, and if your nutrition is really good, you can again lower the amount of gear you need. And at the end of the day, you just need a certain amount to compete at a high level. I mean, IFB Pro Bodybuilders, if you ever see them in person, it's not like a relatable amount of muscle mass. You look at them and you're like, what the fuck? Like, how's that even possible? And a lot of times when they say, oh, yeah, I'm on five grams of shit per week, that's not really a surprise. You're like, hey, it makes sense. I've never taken five grams. There's maybe a reason why I don't look like that. Maybe 10 other reasons. So a lot of times, at least do the smart shit, at least combine the compounds effectively mm -hmm. so that if, if your recourse is, I need to up the dose to be competitive, at the very least, it's the only option available to you because you've already checked all the other boxes. You don't want 
drugs to be like the leading shit that like I'm you know in my superhero fist in the sky the the what points me to the flight is D ball <laughs> the rest of my program is built around my drugs I think it's probably should be the other way around and then lastly is careful attention to two things. One is blood work, of course, which should be done multiple times a year. I actually just got my blood work back. I'm willing to speak about it openly. Um, and two is, um, I, and I'm a vampire. That's the short end of the story. That's not my own. How are you? Are you, are you, are you nuclear? <laughs> I, the, the lady taking the blood is no longer around because it's too, her. she had a crack in her suit and the radiation leaked. Gotcha. Don't worry. I noticed that she was dying from the radiation. I absorbed her life force anyway. She's she's part of me now. She's part of something grand. Oh, Human good. fools. Now you can ascend to your next level. Perfect. Thank you, random lady from the blood donation place. <laughs> um, in any case, so real quick, blood work, but also following up on blood work and other health measures to attend to very specific issues that you may have or are developing and either attend to them in such a way that ameliorates them or fucking quit the sport because there are people who this happens all the time. There are guys, fuck it, Boston Lloyd. Okay. From what I understand, he's just straight up had kidney failure. Kidneys don't work anymore. And they were like, you need to be on dialysis for the rest of your life until and unless we can regrow kidneys in the lab, which hopefully will happen in 10 years. And from what I understand, again, I, I, I'm not trying to disparage uh, anything about him whatsoever, RIP, et cetera. But he apparently was like, nah, fuck that. I'm not going to do dialysis. Don't do that, right? If the doctors say, hey, your heart's way too big and it's not pumping like it should, that's so fucking serious because then you, you can legit die. And all of these tragic deaths, I wish they never happened. But if there's any kind of anything we can take away from this, there's lots to take away from this, but my little takeaway is shit is real as fuck. And if you think, ah, blood work, whatever, it came back, not great, but we're still pushing ahead. Or my doctor said my heart's got this weird lump on it, but fuck that. Um, and there's guys like, I know guys in the pro ranks and guys in the top national level ranks that like will post on Instagram and be like, I don't want to live forever. I just want to fucking live like a champion. And it's like, all right. Um, and to be completely honest, like, Boston Lloyd says shit like that all the time. Boston Lloyd made a career out of taking as much drug as possible. So like, I, I, I will say, and this is super fucked up. I will be on air saying this. I'm comfortable with that. Uh, people have described his death as a tragedy. I'm not comfortable using that terminology. He tried to do this and he succeeded. Is it fucked up? Yes. Are there family involved? Yes. It's super fucking awful. It's terrible. Is it a tragedy in the sense like something random happened? Like 9-11 was a tragedy. You know what I'm saying? Boston Lloyd making a logo, a brand out of a full syringe, Team 3CC. Right. Didn't make it. Maybe, maybe this will get me canceled or whatever, but like for the love of God, uh, you know what I'm saying? We got to think a bit more. You're just highlighting a, an, an area where there is so much of a focus on overusing the pharmacology. And speaking of pharmacology, thank you for the for the advice about the all that and you know just kind of enlightening that kind of way of going about the bodybuilding ranks and uh really doing it the right way i I just feel like you know with all these deaths there's a lot of bodybuilders just trying to get jacked you know all means necessary i i like what you said about it's a possible statistical anomaly that's that's a good point it does you know maybe we just have recency bias i've 
you know, oh, definitely. I love the term. My God, that was a great term. Yeah. So like, you know, with you saying recency bias, you're automatically smarter than, you know, and out of the hundred people you meet today, you'll be the smartest one or two of them because most people just don't know what the fuck that is. Top of the list. Uh, <laughs> that's right. There you go. So uh, it's just, um, uh, there is when people take single or multiple instance events and try to paint a statistical landscape from them, I'm always a bit reserved because I think I just don't know uh, if that's the case. Because what is the base rate of bodybuilder deaths in every year uh, since 1980? Who knows that? I don't know that. So like when three bodybuilders die per year, like, I don't know, like getting here to where the eighties bodybuilders are going to be like in their seventies and eighties and, and later they're going to start dying and be like, well, it's steroids. Like maybe, and that's certainly an uh, average statistical contributor. But I think a lot of people have been saying like, man, all these bodybuilders are dying. It's time to start talking real about drugs in the sport. Like, I think it's been time uh, mm-hmm. to talk about it. I don't think it's any different. I, I will say from what I know about the sport and, you know, I'm in the trenches with a lot of these folks and I have access to a lot of pros via Jared Feather, et cetera. Um, it's not clear to me that guys are any more dangerously using drugs or any more drugs than in like the 90s. And if you're a fan of historical bodybuilding, the 90s and early 2000s, like the Marcus Rule era, like, yes. I mean, those motherfuckers were not holding back. I've heard stories of what those guys were using back in the day. And it's just pure nonsense. I have it on pretty good word. Again, I'm not sure this is true, but on good word that at one point prepping for the 2003 Olympia, Ronnie was using 36 units of growth hormone per day. Oh my Just put that in perspective. The average person makes like one to two units by themselves and two to three will really change you. Six to 10 is like IFBB pro solid dose. 36 is just nonsense. But like, you know, shit like that has been done. And this, we're not in like some new era of drug abuse. Absolutely not. If anything, maybe on average, people are more intelligent now about drugs they use. So when people say, oh man, these recent deaths, it's great that we're having these conversations. I just wouldn't be like, there's some kind of epidemic problem. You know, uh, it's like when people are describing the obesity epidemic, I'm like, you know, is eating tasty junk food, some disease you can catch? <laughs> like, Do I need to mask up for the obesity epidemic? Anyway, that's not. Hey, real quick, Dr. Mike, uh, how much time do you have left? You know, I don't really have any friends, so I got, I got another, another 15 minutes, I think. Okay, right. sounds good. Um, but I can sit alone and, and stare into a corner of the house. Watch the, the paint in the wall chip off. Oh, my God. That takes a lot of patience. Even more patience than drying because the chipping off takes much longer. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I, I, I read your entire book. It was amazing. I, I feel like you had to have had with yourself so a more of a needs analysis after that last bodybuilding show and it's more auto-regulation like like what have you found with your own training that has changed since your last show and additionally with that question how have you adapted your training to your love for jujitsu recently i've adapted my jujitsu for my love of bodybuilding training so um needs analysis wise it's the same more or less it's just confirmed my suspicions that i needed much bigger shoulders and much bigger biceps and so I'm smashing the living shit out of those and prioritizing them. Yeah, well, I don't have your genetics, motherfucker. <laughs> this, this guy's ridiculous. No, Unbelievable. These young kids, you know. I'm Jared's brother, I, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was going to make a variety of, of, of jokes at Jared's expense and the philandering of no doubt of his uh, absentee father. Maybe you are one of his brothers. 
didn't answer that. So, so in any case, yeah, more more of that. But also, uh, there is a thing to making your strong points stronger too. Like I almost certainly had the best legs on stage at my last show. I was actually the, seemingly the leanest person in the class. Uh, well, not seemingly, I was the leanest person in the class. Probably one of the leaner guys at the show. So I'm going to get leaner still because like they don't, there's no point at which you get too lean and the judges are like, all right, no more bonus points. Uh, if you get freaky, 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 you can overcome a lot of like not so great genetics and you turn around and squeeze your glutes. Some judges will be like, move that guy to the middle. What is that? I want to know about it. I want to be that guy potentially. That's just like nonsense lean. Right. So definitely those are priorities, bigger shoulders, bigger biceps, bigger, everything, of course. Um, Another thing I did in needs analysis was I was a tiny, tiny, super heavyweight. I was like just barely over the super cutoff. Um, what I want to do is over the course of this whole calendar year, my next show is probably going to be next July, not this July, next July. Okay. I'm going to try to get like much more jacked uh, in the, in the, in the interim. I think I have decent genetics and I've, n- I've never used more than just a, over a gram of total gear in any mass phase ever up until just recently and this year. So I'm going to try and work my way up to 1.4 grams uh, per week. And uh, is I don't deal with the psychological effects of uh, drugs very well. So like I have this unbelievable anxiety when I take lots of gear and like, oh, Jesus, you guys are TMI, but like I've been having like visions and dreams lately that just, just, there's no fun to have. They're no fun to have. Like I had a dream last night where like uh, some kind of zombie guy was like stabbing people and they were like, bleeding out and dying in front of me. And I was like, was, that's the emotion I felt in the dream. I was, get his like, fingerprints? Say what? Did you get his fingerprints to find him? I had no ability to converse with the man <sighs> and I did not have my investigative tools with me. Unfortunately, the, the duster or whatever. Um, so in any case, all right. So it's not a CSI episode, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, so I'll be sort of uh, be in a very painful state of psychological affairs for the next year trying to get more jacked. I actually like uh, I, I already said that I've done pretty much everything I kind of wanted to do in bodybuilding. It'd be nice to like really put a cool physique on stage and maybe take a shot at like a master's pro card. But like if I get hurt tomorrow and I'm done, I'd be like, thank God, I'll just go right back to TRT. And like I, I uh, here's another thing that's how bad my psychology gets on, on gear. Um when I, I recently went to an active rest phase and was able to go TRT, it was like 300 megs of test. And I, I was like, oh my God, I have emotions. I can see beauty. Like when birds sing and there's like water, I'm like, whoa, I get like a mystical impression of it. I'm like, so beautiful. Like right now I'm back on a gram and I like walked outside. It's absolutely gorgeous in Michigan right now. And like, we live really close to a lake. I was looking at the lake water and I was like, I know that that's beautiful on a technical level. I can't feel anything. Um, I just feel like frustration and fucking rage. I know it doesn't sound like it. It's I kind of dull. Really good cap on it, but like, say what? You, you feel really dull, like dull. Like, dull. I yeah, dull, but not positively dull. Like, I, like dull. High on really a lot of marijuana is like ah, I don't care. This is like I care, but I can barely feel it. It's awful. It's, it's the worst of everything. In any case, that's my needs analysis. That's what I'm doing about it. I'm, I can't wait till it's over, but I'm gonna do it right up until up until I. Uh, happens um what else was i gonna say uh you asked something else i got a personal question so how stupid am i i'm starting a phd may 2nd in sports performance and exercise phys and i have congratulations 
Thank you. Thank you. You guys, you've been a huge inspiration for me. Oh, stop. Oh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Lane Norton, you know, Helms, all you guys. So a lot of, a lot of appreciation there, but I also have a bodybuilding show July 2nd. So I'm going to be getting freaky lean and I'm not, I'm not doing it natural. So I'm going to have some, uh, baby dosages of super supplements in there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, those first eight weeks of the, uh, the PhD, um, I'm assuming there's going to be some cognitive tasks that are going to need to be uh, done at a, a high yes. level. But uh, yeah. the the bodybuilding show, have you been able to, you know, kind of make, do you have any uh, hacks for doing high level cognitive tasks while also dieting for a bodybuilding show? Yes, be born an Ashkenazi Jew. I ah. just have like an absurd IQ to begin with. I'm just kidding. I'm mostly just fanning my own flag here. Um, <laughs> you put that in the capsule. <laughs> that's right. I'll buy it. Gosh, I, all of a sudden you buy it. You're like, oh, I'm so smart. Oh, my back hurts. And I've lost all ability to do sports. Uh, <laughs> he's terrible at bodybuilding. Uh, so, you know, let's see. Uh, one is no matter what you feel like, your emotions about a situation are always wrong. That's something I carry with me everywhere I go when I'm on gear. Um, if I feel offended, if I feel frustrated, my brain's broken because there's drugs in places are not supposed to be. And I just assume I'm wrong and do the calm thing and walk away or regroup or something like that. Uh, another thing is to have a high level of organizational um, effort. So uh, a lot of people who are very smart tend to be rather unorganized. They don't uh, catalog their ideas. They don't bullet point their ideas. They don't make plans. They don't have a rigorous work schedule none of that requires any intelligence really. Um, but if you put that stuff into motion, you can be ultra productive. So for the ideas you do have, if you put them on paper and bullet point, all of them, like I take every idea, every good idea I ever have. And I type it into this thing. It's uh, uh, my iPhone, just type it in a notepad as soon as I have it, because I'll just forget it. And on gear, I'll really forget it. Um, and when I have these ideas later, I expand them. I bullet point them out. And sometimes they're like ideas for a YouTube video. And then later I'll make the PowerPoint and it's all idea, then bullet points, then the PowerPoint, and then I film, and then that's it. And that's out of my hands. So a ton of organizational effort and a ton of patience goes a long way. Um, and you'll feel in your first eight weeks of your PhD, there's actually not anything that difficult going on. Um, it's mostly just an exploratory time for you to get acquainted with things. But uh, you will feel a lot of novelty. And I remember when I was in my first, every program, middle school, high school, college, grad school, PhD, my first few weeks of school, I'm Oh, fucking nervous um, about everything. It's just a ton of stress. But remember, like, it doesn't have to be stressful. So just remember when you're feeling stress, you just be like, oh, like, I'm feeling stressed. I understand humans are primates and they have these outdated emotions. I'm just going to watch the stress. It's going to reduce. It's going to increase. It's going to reduce. So that's okay. I'm, I'll be okay. That's my best advice because it'll, you get really stressed and be like, oh, shit, did I make a huge mistake? No, you'll be fine. Uh, it just takes a little patience. And if you're organized in your work effort, if you're good diligent about taking notes, uh, pre-planning, studying ahead. Um, I tried to finish my PhD program like a year before I, I could. I had all the work done, but they were like, you can't do that. So sit around for longer. Uh, I just like wrote books and stuff. But, um, you know, just get ahead and uh, do your work diligently. I, I'll still say most PhD programs, or not most, many, 
there's still a few students at least that are like have that undergrad mentality of like cramming for shit. Like I remember um, there were some PhD folks that I spoken to. I'm like, how are you doing? And they're like, oh man, I got to defend next week. I'm up to my ears and work. I'm like, man, I didn't do hardly any work the week before I defended because the shit had been done for months. Nice. You can put that shit to your advantage so much. That's the biggest fucking hack in the world. Getting your shit done on time ahead of time is Oh my God, I have never, I don't remember cramming for a test. I just don't have any memory of it. The notion of what it's like, I don't even remember for it. So the fuck would I do that? It's like intentionally super stressful and pointless. Right. So I'd say doing all that, uh, I don't know if you know this, but um, I defended my dissertation successfully one week before I uh, did my first bodybuilding show. Wow. Um, as a matter of fact, I can I think openly about this now. I don't think they take away dissertations. Let's find out if I lose my PhD over this. Um, before I started giving my talk, I took uh, like a Halo and Winstrol tab because it was that time to take those things. There you go. Uh, yeah, a dissertation on Halo is not that much fun. Like nothing on Halo is fun. But in any case, like it was just like I remember taking them and I'll be like, Jesus, the f- this is a fun story for yeah. later. Just like, oh yeah, it's armpits sweating up everything and yeah, it was terrible huge pump i'm just kidding um they're gonna say you had an unfair advantage like oh dr mike that's how we got it <laughs> that's right it's actually the opposite i remember like you know they, they actually do test i think the ioc tests for marijuana use in the olympics and it's like why <laughs> like, it makes you a worse athlete what are you guys talking about the mayor i remember i think dave Chappelle made a skit about the marijuana olympics they like fire the gun and some of the sprinters are like but oh what's going on oh we're sprinting and they some of them go the wrong way <laughs> but in any case like Stuff like that, like it can be done. It can be done. It just takes tons of prior planning. Um, by the time I had to defend my dissertation, forget about all the drug stuff. I was on like zero calories or whatever. By the time I had to defend it, I was so much the expert of what I was talking about because I had been working on it for so long and so far in advance and in such an organized way that it was just a no. I mean, Jesus, you know, here's another cool thing about defending your dissertation. You're the most expert person in the topic in the room in the room so so it's okay you'll be fine who the fuck is going to ask you questions you can't answer some motherfucker that's a dilettante that like came in and from another school in the in the college and was like oh what about reference number 51 i don't know talk about that you're like okay fine so it's really not a big deal uh it just takes a lot of pre-planning and bullet pointing and working diligently like an adult you know uh if you want to do a, a phd like an 18 year old would sweet cram whatever do all that shit but i would i would recommend otherwise it's fantastic don't be a dipshit undergrad and cram last minute dude that shit still happens it was baffling to me my phd program is pretty good but we were friends with some other phd students that were talking about doing that i'm like what the fuck is wrong with you like don't you like what you're studying why would you do a phd if you didn't like what you're studying that's a whole other thing you fail the plan you plan to fail boom last question um Dr. Mike, what do you have coming up that's exciting for you? What do you have coming up on the horizon? You're a very motivated, organized guy. Like, what's what's kind of uh, coming up on your next project? Definitely lots of YouTube videos. Which are the points that I think if we released like four YouTube videos a week, uh, we might actually bump to five pretty soon. Uh, if we release five YouTube videos per week and I had no more new ideas, we have enough YouTube ideas to last like five years of wow. releases. Yeah. Turns out I had a lot to say. Um, we are working on other projects. There are multiple uh, diet app updates that are being made that are really, really cool. Like you can move your macros around. It's just going to turn our app into more customizable app for more advanced folks. 
Um, and then lastly, I'm working on another project, which actually can't talk about much, but it has to do with training. All right. Well, that's new. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I never work with training. I hate training. I don't train myself. Oh, I forgot what I forgot. Uh, I just remembered what I forgot to answer. You're asking about <clears throat> jiu-jitsu training and how I modify my lifting around it. I really don't. Um, I modify my jiu-jitsu around my lifting because lifting is first priority for me. When I hopefully make it and retire from bodybuilding in a few years, I'm going to do jiu-jitsu full-time as my number one sport and do hypertrophic training as a very back burner thing. But I recently started switching to um, uh, training more with friends and doing more privates and stuff like that and not rolling with open mat people as much because it's just really stupid for when I'm trying to put like the exclamation mark on my bodybuilding career here um, for me to get randomly hurt. Because the thing is like, it's an idea I was toying with. And then I walked into the gym, deloaded, feeling great. And I had a, an ultra heavyweight fall on my elbow um, and it hurt my elbow for like half a week. And like, there was nothing seriously wrong with it. But I was just like, like as soon as it happened, I was like, God damn it. And I was like, that's it. That's it. I'm not training with giant people until I fucking retire from bodybuilding. And it really is just, giant people the, the probability of people hurting you by falling on you and it was i was beating the guy when he fell on me and i, I beat him during and after and it's not like he was manhandling me it was just like big people fall on each other and people get hurt i'm sure i hurt a few people just falling on them when i was a fucking white belt blue belt purple etc so to me i'm just backing away from super hardcore jiu-jitsu training against big strong people because the injury risk currently doesn't make sense and it pains me because I want fucking blood. When a huge dude walks into jujitsu, my eyes get all like, you know, like steamy, like as if a hot girl walked in. What's, what's wrong with me? I don't think about that. <laughs> but uh, no, it's just like I want a shot at the title, you know, but I, I got to reserve that for when I'm done because the injury risk. You know, if you talk to Jared Feather, he thinks the, the entire the fact that I do jujitsu at all is a fucking stupid idea. And he's probably right. Um, but I tell you this, if I didn't do jujitsu, those dreams would be a lot worse. <laughs> so it's mostly therapy. So I don't, you know, have really bad dreams, I guess. That doesn't sound as tough as it did in my head, but that's how it came up. Well, plus I mentioned on the, lot of, on the last podcast when we talked to you that it's a, it's a very um, self-confident building thing where, you know, it's like, what if you're in the street with a girlfriend? Dude, you, you can handle most people in the street. You can just like put them in a pretzel. Boom. Take that, motherfucker. Yeah, I, I, I want to be the first person who does like, that's probably not the first. Uh, I want to be one of the people, one of the only people to have a street fight recorded on like World Star, where I, I like do tactical jujitsu and people are like, whoa, that's really cool. I remember when there was a street fight, of course, it's recorded in Brazil, where one guy like, he looks another guy in a street fight. And that was just end of the fight. Because like, oh my God, my knee. And he just walks off and fucks. I just like walks away. And I think it was the guy that attacked him, didn't know jujitsu. It was almost always the case. Like people who know martial arts almost never attack anyone because they like they get all their kicks out in training. And some guy like attacked him, which is supposedly pretty common in Brazil. And the guy just like heel hooked him, which, you know, for those who don't know jujitsu is like, like if this is the heel of your foot, you take your hand and you twist this way. You can imagine it goes up the knee and very bad things happen to a whole lot of stuff. You just won't walk for gee with rehab probably like four or five months uh and that happened the street fight so you know if i get attacked the watch i get attacked just knock the fuck out and you get to see dr mike on the news like crying at the hospital but there's a small chance i could get into my deep half game and all kinds of fun things will happen then feeling that wouldn't happen problem with being a bodybuilder is nobody's gonna want to fight you i haven't been threatened in a long time uh, just walk around since i started walk around where my girlfriend lives at night 
for like an hour and somebody's going to challenge you. That's, it's, uh, it's <laughs> oh, you think you're, there you go. Cool? <laughs> they're all on math, you know, whatever else it's free in, here. in Philadelphia. I was already a purple belt. I had already done like a pro fight and everything. And there was a guy on the street corner, right outside of a bar at 2 PM, of course, who tried to fight me. And my mom, <laughs> I was on the phone with my mom. And the entire time she's like, walk away, walk away, walk away. You don't need this. And I'm like, because I, I had the whole thing set up, man. I was going to fake. He was going to advance. I was going to double leg him and like pass into side control. And he was going to be <laughs> up against the wall. And I was just going to take a couple shots at him, neon belly. And he was going to turn. I was going to, the whole, I was in this instant second. I was like, I can, I can do this. And the guy was like in his mid forties and like 180 pounds, except like a portly little fat guy. And he was like, just a little taller than me. And I was like, motherfucker, are you out of your mind? And I look like more or less like I do now with, you know, like my, my head does not look like a person you want to fight. Like maybe I'm pussy deep down inside or whatever, but like something's wrong with my face. And you're from like, Moscow. Yeah. I guess he didn't know that part. Right. But like, you know, I just like have a thing like I'm Russian wouldn't go, go so well today for good reason. But uh, no, but like he legitimately, he was like, I remember the, the fight was, in, or the, the confrontation was insane. He was like, I was walking. I was, I had my headphones and I was talking to my fucking mom. And he's like, Hey, what kind of supplements do you take? And I just kept walking. He's like, Hey. And I was like, yes. He's like, what kind of supplements do you take, man? And I was like, Oh, I was on the, uh, he was like, I was like, yes. And he was like, Oh, Oh, it's just, he got really nice. I was like, I was just trying to ask like, what you take to get jacked. I was like, Hey man, I'm on, I'm on the phone. I literally said it just like that. And he's like, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> classic Philadelphia. I was like, what? So I was like, I got a little testy. I was like, what? Why? I was like, mostly amused. I was like, what? Are you serious? He's like, no, I just like, I just wanted to know, man. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm on the phone. And I said it just like that. He's like, fuck you then. He kind of bucked up. And my mom's like, walk away, walk away. And I was like, I literally was in the street five feet away from him. I was like, and I just started walking away and he like sort of moved back. And I was like, God damn it. If there were no laws, would be fuck. I had an incident almost like that a couple of years ago and he took a swig at me, but he was so drunk. It was like, I was in the matrix. So I, I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to like slip. I just kind of moved this much misses my shoulder and then falls over a rail and starts puking. Oh, like, oh my God. Wow. That's the best fight ever. It's like when the androids took on the Z fighters, like oh, they were just man. way ahead of them. It's slow motion. He was punching like this. Oh man. It was bad. very drunk. I like that. He was so drunk that the next possible thing he was going to do is puke. <laughs> I'm surprised that he had any violence left in him. Did he say anything? Was there a reason he wanted to attack you or no reason given? He was just looking for a fight. He's a he's a very uh, very short uh, Irish looking fellow. Very drunk. Short man syndrome. Yeah. Short man syndrome. You almost got beat up by a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> They're like you, you have like a black eye. People are like, what happened? Like, I don't want to talk about it. But all I'm saying is Lucky Charms. You know, uh, I don't know why they promote that leprechaun guy so much. He's a piece of shit in real life. Yeah. Yeah. We're hearing about your jujitsu background, like. It shows that you're a badass. And also, speaking of being a badass, I loved how it was late or early fall last year. You wore our shirt on one of your YouTube videos. So um, we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, of course, you gave me a free shirt. What am I going to do? Not wear it. I like the shirt. It's fitted nice, man. It makes you look extra jacked. You're going to be a mask. So you your guys' shirt. (laughs) Your guys' shirt makes me look fucking jacked. I should have worn mine today. What am I thinking? (laughs) There you go. What are you doing? Yeah, there it is. No, that's the exact same shirt. Um, 
some shirts you wear and you're like, yeah, it's a thing to cover my body because people would be shocked if I walked around naked. This is mostly the reason I wear clothes. But like your shirt fits well. And I'm like, damn, damn. It flex it in the mirror, flex in the parking lots, flexing it old ladies. Get out of here, old lady. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Dr. Mike, if somebody's living under a rock and they don't know where to find you, where, uh, where can they find you and what do you want to plug? Plug it all right now. That's it. I thought it was going to continue the music. It's going to keep going. It's keep, it's still going. going. Oh, there it is. I, when I talk, it cuts out the income. Uh, I just want to listen to the music more. Hopefully Damn it. Listeners, it's still going. Awesome. All right, listeners. So just YouTube. Just go to YouTube. YouTube, I-S-R-A-E-T-E-L, Renaissance Periodization YouTube channel will pop up. I didn't say you search for that because it's impossible to spell. Um, and uh, get on YouTube, and I've got all kinds of fun informational stuff. And here's a quick tip go back and look at our playlists because we have playlists that are super educational, super awesome. And go back through our history. If it's your first time to the channel, don't just start watching the new shit. Go back like a year and start watching the old shit because the old shit's super relevant and it just kind of gets better as you go along. And like, you know, we have a lot of fun and uh, we like to teach. And by we, I mean me because I have no friends and I have nothing to do after this. So it's usual. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. Guys, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. 